Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Luke 18, 18 to 30. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when, we heard, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, uh, as we come to this text and to our, our passage that we're going to preach through right now, um, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, we come to you and we come in the name of Jesus and we come in the confidence of your mercy and your grace to us through him. Uh, we come in the confidence that your Holy Spirit um, has been poured out in this place, in this church, Lord, for us, Lord, to, to grow, to know and to love Jesus more. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would cause us to love Jesus fully and completely. Would you cause us to let go of all of the things in our lives that we hold on to that keep us back from wholeheartedly following him? God, I pray for those that are new to Jesus in this room, those that have come in and maybe are just curious about Jesus or who don't yet know him in the way that some of us have come to know him. Lord, I pray for them that they would see that Jesus is worth leaving everything behind for, that the life that he offers is greater, is better, that following him is life and true life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this morning we are in our fourth sermon in our series, which we're calling The Goodness of Jesus. And I'm going to be real honest with you this morning. I have a very specific goal for this series. The goal that I have for this series is that I'm trying to persuade you of something. I'm trying to hold forth a picture of the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, which we see in the word of God, to get you to get all the way in the boat with Jesus. See, we have a problem in our lives. And the problem is that we so often go through life and we live with one foot squarely planted on the dock of the good things that we have in this world and another foot with Jesus in the boat. And it's a problem because it causes us to be stuck in our loyalties or conflicted in our loyalties with the resulting disaster that we fall in to the ocean between the boat and the dock. See, Jesus is worth getting all the way in with. And it's why I've chosen for our text this morning the story of the rich young ruler, because in this text, Jesus demonstrates his incredible goodness in the way that he confronts our idolatry, the way that he confronts that foot on the dock and all the things that that dock represents to push us all the way into the boat with him, to invite us into that boat with him. So in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is just so incredibly good in three ways. Number one, he's good because he confronts our idolatry. Number two, he's good because he changes our desires. And number three, he's good because his gifts are greater riches than anything the world could possibly offer to us. So we're going to look at the text and our point number one and start right away in verse 18. Jesus is good because he confronts our idolatry. And a ruler asked him, this ruler comes to Jesus and he's seen that Jesus is a good teacher. So he says, and he walks up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, who was this ruler? The Gospel of Matthew adds a detail that he was young. And if he was young, then he wouldn't have been a religious leader. That wouldn't have been possible for him. So likely, he was some sort of a devout civic leader in the community uh, who had some influence. And yet we'll see in a moment that despite his devoutness, despite his leadership, that he was divided in his loyalties toward God. And the problem was that his divided loyalties toward God would keep him from the eternal life that he said he desired. So the young ruler comes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? It's interesting, very abrupt, almost a confrontation immediately out of the gate. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now, growing up, I had a friend uh, who had a grandfather who, whenever this friend of mine would say, or whenever the grandfather would ask my friend, uh, how are you doing? And if he said, oh, I'm doing good, grandpa, he'd say, no one is good but God alone, Matthew. And uh, he'd get a pious rebuke every single time for the way that he used the wrong word. And I think actually as we come to this passage of scripture, we have a bit of a problem because in our own hearts, we're not prepared to hear it for what Jesus is actually doing. And we often hear it just as a picky, pious, maybe condescending rebuke from Jesus. 
But Christ City, if we react to this story thinking Jesus is just a picky religious policeman who tries to catch us up when we mess up, then we don't yet know who he is in his goodness. That's not who Jesus is. He's not a picky religious policeman trying to trip you up or catch you when you fall. See, Jesus isn't concerned with right or wrong word choices for this young man. Jesus is concerned about his heart. Actually, I find it beautiful that in the gospel of, of, uh, of Mark's account of this story, um, Mark says Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. He loves him. He loves us. He cares about us. Because he cares about him, Jesus asks the man why he calls him good. Because he's challenging him a little bit. He says, I, I don't know that you do think that I'm good. Because if you thought that I was good, you'd be willing to listen to what I have to say. You'd be willing to follow me and to receive the eternal life that I do offer. But I know that's not the case. See, Jesus sees through the ruler's heart. Isn't God so wise? Isn't Jesus so wise? The sort of Savior who doesn't just interact with us with words on a page, but even now by his Holy Spirit, the kind of Savior who sees you, Christ said he. Who knows what's going on in your hearts, who wisely understands how you operate. Jesus sees through the ruler's heart. He sees through our hearts. And in his love, he confronts this man to give him the opportunity to turn to him. Look at verse 20 and the way Jesus answers the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The man does know the commandments. He's a devout Jew. He loves the Bible. He loves going to synagogue. And he responds, I can only imagine very gladly in verse 21, all these I've kept since I was a youth, since I was a small boy. I do know these commandments, Jesus. I think this is where we really see the power and the insight of Jesus' wisdom because after Jesus has built a little bit of rapport with this man through asking for the commands that he has kept, he then steps forward a bit more in confrontation and takes aim at the dead center of the place that this man was lacking. He's aiming at the man's heart. Look at verses 22 to 23. Jesus responds, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. See, the man had one foot on the dock and only one foot on the boat with God. The man, when push came to shove, when confronted with Jesus and when his heart was exposed, he showed that he didn't really want Jesus. He didn't really want the things of God. What he wanted more than that was his wealth. That's what he loved and served. And to love something other than God more than God 
is called idolatry in the Bible. It's a disordered love where our loves were meant to, to love God with our whole heart. We're meant for relationship with Him. When we take the love that's meant for Him and put it towards some other earthly or created thing that pulls us away from God, that's called idolatry. And I don't think we're meant to read Jesus' words in this passage and conclude that unless we literally sell everything we have and give to the poor, that we can't have eternal life and be Jesus' followers. I don't think it's that specific. And there's a reason why I don't think it's that specific. Because in the next chapter, there's another, another wealthy man who's the character foil to the rich young ruler. You know who he is? His name's Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, he will become a follower of Jesus, but Zacchaeus very significantly doesn't sell all that he has and give to the poor. And Jesus says explicitly in that passage that Zacchaeus is saved. What happened with Zacchaeus? Well, where Zacchaeus and the young men are different is at the level of their heart's love and loyalty in response to God. Because where the rich young man leaves Jesus sad because he loves his wealth, Zacchaeus voluntarily churns his allegiance to Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to confront Zacchaeus about anything in his life. As Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he immediately churns to him and wants to follow him. In Luke 19, verses 8 to 9, we see that because he says, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. I think the test that Jesus is getting at is more than money. It's not less than money. It's more than money. Because ultimately, Jesus doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts, Christ said he. See, how we use our money, it just demonstrates where our hearts are really at. And that's the thing. This man wasn't willing to give of his money because his heart was with his money. Zacchaeus gave to the poor, repaid because his heart was with Jesus. Jesus wants our hearts. And it's why Jesus says in Matthew 22, Verse 37, that the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart, but Christ said it's not because he's needy. It's not because there's something missing in Jesus, some inadequacy in the love and the happiness of, of who he is that then says, I want to fill it up with all of you. Love me, love me, love me. He's not a needy savior like that. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who is happy and content and satisfied forever and for eternity in relationship with Father and with Spirit. Jesus doesn't ask for our hearts because he needs us to be happy himself. He asks us for our hearts because he wants to share the joy of relationship with God that he has with us. He wants to bring us into his joy. He wants us to be part of relationship with him, with Father and Son and Spirit. You see, God often describes relationship with God in the Bible through the analogy of a human marriage. And marriage is so much more than just a loyalty. It's about an intimacy, isn't it? 
See, in my marriage, for example, uh, if I were to, to say that I love my wife and I pursue my wife, and then every time that I would do something nice for Heather, I, I sit down and I write her a nice card. If I, at the same time, had another card writing to someone else, or every time I purchased a gift for Heather, I went out and purchased another one for another woman that I was pursuing. Every time that I showered her with affection and service and love, she and I both knew that I was doing the same thing for someone else at the same time. What would that do to our marriage? What would that do to the intimacy that that God created marriage for, to the joy of relationship that we're supposed to have together? It would corrupt our marriage. My divided love and loyalty would ruin the intimacy and the joy that our marriage is supposed to have. But in the same way, Christ said, you weren't made merely to be God's obedient subjects. You were made for joy-filled, intimate relationship with him. That you're made for. And that's why Jesus is willing to confront us when we love other things more than him. Because those things keep us from all of the goodness that he wants to offer us. So I'm wondering this morning, where in your own lives are your loyalties to God divided? Where are the areas where, where you have one foot on the dock of this world? And where when you feel Jesus challenging and confronting you, you aren't willing to, to get the foot off that dock? I want to encourage you to open your heart and to receive the confrontation of God through the Holy Spirit this morning. Receive his confrontation. He doesn't love you and want to strip away your idols from you just to leave you with nothing. He loves you and he confronts you to give you something so much better than you have. So once you receive that confrontation from him this morning. But not only does Jesus confront our idols, and we see that in this passage, he also come, he also has come to change our hearts' desires, or we aren't able to change our desires on our own. And that's the second point we'll see in this text this morning. Jesus changes our desires. Look at verses 24 to 27. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, again, I don't think Jesus' point here is to say that rich people can't have eternal life. If you have more than X number of dollars, too bad, you're out. You know, it's not going to work. No, Jesus' point here is to say that human beings can't be freed from their idolatry apart from the power of God. Human beings can't be freed from their idolatry apart from the power of God. Even though, if we're honest, we very often love our idols, don't we, Christ City? Right? Jesus wants to free us, but if we're honest, there's a lot of times like, I don't know, Jesus. I feel you tugging here, but I, I kind of like the things that I'm worshiping. I like my dock. Makes me comfortable. Makes me happy in various ways. And that makes sense because idols can only ever be created things that God has given to us. Right? They're good things that God gave us to enjoy, but they were never meant to take the place of God. 
When we try to, and when we allow those idols to take the place of God, what happens is that they inevitably hurt us and destroy us and leave us feeling empty. For example, if your idol is your children, you know what's going to happen? You're going to need the love of your children. You're going to be needy and anxious and controlling and oppressive in your love for your kids. And over time, you know what that will do? That will drive your children away from you. And then the day that comes when they move out of the house and they're on their own and they're doing their thing, you're going to be left empty. Your identity, which you've carefully cultivated around your idol, will be broken and you won't have a purpose or a meaning for yourself any longer. And your idolatry will destroy you. Or if your idol is your career, what will happen is that over time, you'll work yourself into isolation and loneliness. And then when you can't work anymore, you'll have lost your identity and your community, which have all been formed around the productivity that you can have in this world. And you'll be broken and empty, disappointed. If your idol is sex, you'll use human beings as a means to your gratification. And you'll destroy the possibility of a true intimate relationship with another human being in marriage. In the process of that lust, you'll even damage your own soul. And if your idol is your self-image, well, then you'll never be able to simply enjoy the beautiful human beings that God has created and put around you because you'll always be comparing yourself to them. You'll never be able to look in the mirror and just be thankful for who God created you to be because you want to be different. And in your fight against age and to always look beautiful, you will, A, you'll lose that battle, But B, you'll never be able to receive age as a gift that God has given you. And just be thankful for the way that he is growing you. Christ City, we are being formed and shaped as people every moment of every day by the things that we love. But idols take and take and take and take and leave us empty and inhuman. But Jesus came in his love to give and to give and to give and to restore our humanity. He draws our hearts to him in worship. See, where we've become impossibly trapped in our love for the wrong things with that foot fixed so firmly on the dock, we can't get it off. Jesus came to bring us back to God, to draw us to God by showing us how much better he is than any of our idols. That's what happened to the disciples. Do you see what Peter said in verse 28? Peter said, see, we've left everything. We've left our homes and we've followed you, Jesus. He hears his words and and he says, look, Jesus, what's going on? Like, we left you? Why did that happen? Well, imagine Peter the day that he met Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Just think about that moment. He had his entire livelihood on that shore that day. He had his boat, his nets, his career. His friends and family were in that region. His whole life was there. And he looks up. And he looks down the beach and he sees Jesus walking towards him. And he looks at Jesus and he looks at his, his nets and, and he leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Why was that? 
Now, many years ago, I had my very first tree-ripened peach from the Similkameen Valley in Karameas. And on that day, something magical happened that changed me forever. See, I, I reached down and I, and I grabbed this peach just freshly ripened and I bit into it. And I can't describe it if you've not experienced it, but, but it was glorious as every sense in my mouth was exploded with the juiciness of this peach. And the juice was so rich, it was dripping down my elbow and onto the ground as I was eating it. And you know what happened that moment? I was ruined forever for peaches from the stores here in Vancouver. I don't even try anymore. I don't even buy those hard green peaches and put them in my bags and carefully let them ripen in the shadows of my house. I don't even bother anymore because it doesn't work. They're not good enough. The peach changed me. (laughs) See, why did the disciples leave everything to follow Jesus? Because when they looked up and they saw Jesus, they saw that there was something incomparably glorious and beautiful and good about who he was that paled everything else in comparison to him. He's just so much better. That's fine. We'll leave our homes. <laughs> We're going to follow you now. So human beings are only, only ever changed in our desires by greater desires. By a greater satisfaction. And Jesus was the one who did that work in the disciples. So when they looked up and they saw Jesus that day, they started to follow him. But it would be the cross of Jesus that put the nail in the coffin finally of all of their idolatries. Because the story goes on, they followed him at the beach, but we know from later in the Gospels they abandoned him at the cross. And yet at that cross, Jesus showed them his incomparable goodness and love because even though they were unfaithful to him, Jesus never stopped being faithful in love to them. And it changed them. Saw that Jesus, that he gave himself in their place and for their sins on that cross. They came to realize that Jesus had borne the judgment of God that they deserved for their idolatry on that cross. See, the cross of Jesus shows us that God's love is superior to every idol. Because where our idols take and take and leave you empty and inhuman, at the cross Jesus gave and gave and gave in his goodness and love to reconcile us to relationship with God and to restore our broken humanity. He's infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. In Romans 5 verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, still idolaters, still with one foot firmly on the dock, that's when Christ died for us. That's how great his love is for us. God's love shown on the cross of Jesus, it changed the disciples. If you read the rest of the Bible, their lives were radically changed. They spent the rest of their lives serving Jesus and gladly giving up all that they had, even their very lives, for him. And one of those apostles, John would write later in 1 John 4:19, "We love because he first loved us." 
His greater love is what changed us. See, what is impossible with man is possible with God because of Jesus. So let me ask you, this morning, are you stuck in a soul-destroying idolatry? Maybe you don't realize that it's soul-destroying. Maybe you do feel stuck. Look to Jesus. Look to him and his word. Come join us in worship every Sunday. Seek him. Come to understand and to know his glorious goodness. It's only as you look to him that your love for those other things will start to fade in the light of his infinite glory and grace and beauty. So Jesus is good because he confronts our idolatry. He's good because he changes our hearts with his incomparable goodness and beauty. But in our last point, we'll see that he's good also because he gives greater riches than anything that this world could offer us. Look at verses 28 to 30 with me. Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Grace City, do you know that every person who's ever followed God in history has done so in faith? Every person who's followed God, they've had to trust and obey God, get all the way in the boat with him without really knowing if it's going to work out ahead of time. The very beginning of the Bible, one of the first stories is about this man named Abraham. And God says, you got to leave Ur, which is a long ways away from Canaan. you got to go to Canaan, which is the, the present land of, of Israel. And Abraham didn't know how it was going to work. But he left everything behind. He trusted God and he went. Moses in the Bible is another person. He grew up in the courts of Pharaoh. All the wealth of the richest dynasty and empire of the time at his disposal. And he chose, no, I'm going to follow God. Not sure how it's going to work out yet. And leave all that behind. Every person in the Bible who follows God has had to do so in faith. Not sure if it's going to work out yet. But Jesus shows his goodness and his compassion to his disciples' question here by encouraging them with a rare glimpse around the bend of faith. What will we receive for leaving everything and following you, Jesus? Peter asks. Riches. Christ City, riches beyond your dreams. Riches so great that everything that you give up today to follow Jesus, you'll one day be with Jesus forever and you'll just count it a privilege and a joy that he allowed you. The gift of being able to give that up to follow him. If you thank you, Jesus, that you let me suffer a little bit to have you. That's a privilege. It's my joy. This is so much better. And in this text, Jesus describes these riches in two stages. First, he speaks of the riches now. He says, in this life, in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, today. Now, as an aside, Jesus is not justifying those who have in the history of the church abandoned their families saying it's worth it. We can follow Jesus and leave our families behind. 
That's not what Jesus is saying here. We know it's not what he's saying because in another text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the requirements for leaders in the church is that they care for their families. Right? The Bible is one book and God is clear that we are to care for our families. I think what he's describing is actually those who give up opportunities to have children because they're going to become a follower of Jesus. You know, maybe I'm going to stay single and I won't be married and I won't have kids because the call of God on my life is bringing me to a place that is difficult and hard and dangerous. and I'm just going to follow Jesus completely and, and, and be there for him, with him. I think he's talking about the times in our lives when, when we become Christians and sometimes it introduces a conflict with our family that's not yet a Christian. And they don't understand us like they used to and we don't understand them and, and though we love them, maybe they actually start to create some distance with us as we follow Jesus. Or I think he's talking about the times when maybe as we listen to Jesus and we follow him, we move and we're far away from our hometowns and our families of origin because of the work of the mission of God that he has given to us. And I think Jesus is saying here, in any of those situations, you will have so much more than all that you've given up. You know why? Because God gives you a new family. Christ said he's given you the church. And the church of Jesus is a family. We had our, our child dedications here. Christ City, you are my family. You're my family. We don't live that far away, Heather and I, from our family, but it's far enough that it's, it's different than it used to be. But you know what God has given us instead? Brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles for our kids. He surrounded us with the riches of a new family. You are that family. Part of the riches of a family is that, that you care for one another when you have need. There's resources that are shared with one another. And in the church of God, it's the same. When we have need, we don't just have a biological family's resources far away at our disposal. We have the riches of the family of God to care for one another. In Christ City, I'm so encouraged in this church that I see that kind of familial bond and care growing all the time here. May God continue to grow us, that we would continue to be a place of refuge for all those around who have to leave things and give stuff up to follow Jesus. May we intently commit to being a family for them. Jesus speaks of the blessings now, the blessings of a new family, but he also speaks of the life to come. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What do you think of when you think of the words eternal life? What do you look forward to when you think of the words eternal life? You think of a new world without corruption and sin? Do you think of a resurrection body free from the things that, that hold you down today? See, those things will be amazing and God does promise them in eternal life. But eternal life is first and foremost life with a person. Eternal life in the Bible is all about finally seeing Jesus face to face 
It's to live in the presence of God and to know his incomparable sweetness and intimacy and joy in relationship with him. Eternal life is all that we just taste today in the goodness of Jesus, completely fulfilled when we're with God forever. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3. He wrote, he said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that's so instructive for us because it helps us to see that the thing that Jesus wants for us now as he confronts our idolatry is the same thing that he's prepared for us for eternity. It's more of him. He wants more and more of him for us today that will then explode into the fullness of him for us in eternity when we are with him forever, knowing God face to face as the Apostle John describes in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you doubt that following Jesus will be worth it? I want to challenge you. Stop looking at the little bit of good you found in your hands. Stop letting that little bit of good hold you back from the preeminent supremacy and glory and infinity of all of God's goodness. There just isn't a comparison. And all the idols that you look at, they're only going to crack and crumble under the weight of all of your expectations for them. But you know who doesn't crack and crumble when we worship and adore him and serve him and obey him and follow him? Jesus. He becomes better and better and better the more that we know him. We never, never, never fully know the weight of his infinite glory and goodness in this life. We just keep growing into it. He gives life that's truly life. He gives joy unsearchable and full of glory. He gives meaning and purpose. He gives us a vocation and a mission as we serve him. He gives us a new family. He pours out the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit upon us. And in the age to come, he gives us eternal life with him. So don't leave here sad this morning because you have an idol you won't let go of. Surrender your whole life to Jesus. He is infinitely worth it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you and we ask, would you do a work in our hearts this morning to just free us from all those things that we're holding on to? The things that keep us back from obeying you and serving you and following you and loving you and being loyal to you and sharing you with our neighbors. Free us from those things and send us out on mission for the glory of your great name that we would be passionate about one thing in the neighborhood of Kitsilano, your glory your worth, the hallowedness of your name. Lord, we ask that you would do this work for your eternal glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.